is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me is James Bell, Head of Corporate Communications for Kia America. James is speaking to us live from the floor of the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, which of course takes place here in Las Vegas every January. And he's letting people know some little-known facts about electric vehicles while answering all their questions on EVs versus traditional gas-powered cars. James, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I love coming to Las Vegas and love CES, so this is a perfect combination for me. Absolutely. All right, so the listeners can't see you on the radio, but what's innovative about the Kia display at CES this year? Well, we're pretty excited because we've actually partnered up with a company called Wallbox, and what they are doing is the, the idea of how people are going to be charging their vehicles in the future, the electric vehicles, is actually the next thing to consider. I know a lot of your listeners are probably thinking, well, you know, I'm trying to decide if electric cars even right for me, but we at Kia, we're, we're kind of going to the next level and saying, what can people, what, because we know this business is shifting towards electrification, how can we make it even more efficient, even smarter, even easier? And so again, we've partnered with a company called Wallbox, and we've built a, a beautiful home here in the parking lot, just outside the convention center, that highlights the ability to basically use your vehicle as a source of electricity and power for your home. In most cases, you would come home, plug your vehicle in, you know, it would charge overnight, and then you'd carry on and drive your day. But it, it, with this new program with Wallbox, the vehicle and the home actually speak to one another. So if the local power authority needs additional power for a short time because of it's a very warm day or something like that, they can actually reach in and take power from your vehicle, pay you for that power. And then once they no longer need that energy from your vehicle, they can then uh, replenish it into your car at a lower rate. So it's actually a very efficient way of getting yourself into this world of, of uh, electrified transportation. Okay, so this would be what's known as bi-directional charging or vehicle to home? Exactly right. Yes, bi-directional charging. So again, it's that idea of, you know, it, it, I guess maybe a nice way of thinking of it is, is with your cell phone. We all charge our phones overnight. This idea is that you would plug your phone into the grid and it would take power when it needed it. But then if your house needed power, let's say there's a storm or uh, some kind of power outage in your neighborhood, the charging unit uh, that's attached to the wall would actually sense that moment and then start to pull power from your vehicle and keep your house going until power is restored on, the, on a larger basis. So it's a much more of a, you know, an intelligent charging solution as opposed to just one direction. Yeah. Okay. So how much extra power do we actually have in an electric vehicle to be able to share with the grid? Well, it, I mean, obviously it all depends on the size of the battery and the state of charge at the time. But, you know, I think people think about electric cars first and foremost as just a way to get around town. And obviously it's an incredibly efficient way to do that. But we, what we're trying to remind people here is that these are actually massive, you know, electricity storage devices that most of the time will just be sitting in your driveway, maybe, you know, already charged up and just holding that power for your next drive. So it really does depend on, on when you're to your question of how much power is available. Depends on the vehicle. It depends on the state of charge. But I think that what we're really excited about is the future of electric vehicle charging will be this kind of two-way street such that it'll be done as efficiently and as smartly and as environmentally safe as possible. Okay. Now, when we're not sharing with the grid, but just want to power our own home with an electric vehicle, can an electric car really power a whole house? 
Well, it depends on what the load is, obviously. So let's say we're here in Las Vegas and it's a hot day and you've got the air conditioning cranking away and, uh, you know, the refrigerator going and, and lots of different devices that are maybe being impacted by the, by the overall heat. You can then set up these, this new uh, kind of interactive bi-directional systems to only give power to where you really need it. So maybe, you know, keep the freezer items cold, run the air conditioner, but raise it to a little higher temperature. So it's not quite the same draw. You know, electricity, whether it's coming from uh, the grid or from your battery in your car, it's finite to some degree. So you just want to use the power that's available from your vehicle into your home as efficiently as possible. And, you know, we've seen many instances already around the country when there's a large storm or uh, any sort of uh, temporary blackout. People are quickly able to go in and, and plug their vehicle into their homes to be able to run it. What we're offering here today at CES is the idea that basically the car and the house will speak to one another and manage that experience automatically. Okay. Now, does every EV theoretically have the capability of bi-directional charging if we're using a device like Wallbox? It's a great question. Thank you so much for asking. Actually, we at Kia are quite proud because we're amongst the only companies that have this V2H or V2X, as it's often called, vehicle two, and then in case of the letter X, meaning lots of different ways. You can use one of our new EVs, say like the Kia EV9, which was just named North American Utility Vehicle of the Year, and take it camping and plug into it uh, your laptop if you have some work to do. Or maybe uh, you, you run a little theater system for the kids when you're out camping, or you need to uh, fill up um, air mattresses or something like that. You have this power source, just like maybe once upon a time people would you know, bring along a generator on a camping trip. Now your vehicle can provide that electricity. Nice. Okay. Now, as far as driving electric vehicles, I think Las Vegas is the perfect place because it's a relatively small area. There's a lot of stop and go. You can easily charge up a vehicle and drive it all week if you want. So what do you think people should know about considering EVs versus gas-powered cars as a means of getting around? Fantastic question. Thank you so much for asking that. And yes, I do agree with you that Las Vegas area is, is really quite perfect. And actually for maybe a reason that people hadn't considered, and that is in and around town, obviously it's it's very flat, not a lot of hills to climb unless you're out know, in some of the more extended communities. But the real trick is, and, and again, I've been in your fine city a couple of days now, when you're in sort of stop and go traffic or slow and go traffic, that's when electric vehicles really shine. Their, their moment of highest efficiency is, you know, zipping along at 30 miles an hour on Las Vegas Boulevard, as opposed to doing 75 or 80 miles per hour uh, on the highway. So, yes, I agree. I mean, most people, if they're considering electric vehicle as their next transportation, uh, especially if they're just kind of running around town, picking kids up from school, commuting to the office, things like that. The idea of using a gasoline-powered car to do trips like that is going to feel very archaic very soon. I'll even go as far as to say it feels archaic now. The idea of sitting at a, at a stoplight and hearing your gasoline engine run, that's kind of old school now. And so, uh, yeah, I think Las Vegas is a great town for electrification. And of course, you know, if you have that long run to Los Angeles or to Utah or somewhere, the charging infrastructure that now exists is much more robust. In fact, I just drove, I live in Los Angeles area. I drove my Kia EV6 here to Las Vegas a few weeks ago, and uh, it was very easy to do. Stopped for about 30 minutes and charged up while I got a sandwich. It's a great way to go and saves you so much money and time from having to go to the gas station. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so where can listeners go if they want to get more information about electric vehicles or the new bi-directional charging technology? Oh, yeah, great. So I think the easiest place would be to go to, to Kia.com. 
especially uh, now that CES is going to have a whole selection of amazing information about not only the way our, our Kia electric vehicles work and all the awards that they've recently collected, but also, as I mentioned, this this idea of bi-directional charging, of, of having your home and your, your utility company and your car all speak together and be as efficient and as, as smart for your driving needs as possible. Awesome. Okay. So Kia.com is the website to go to. Kia.com. You can check out all the electric vehicles that Kia has to offer. And we've been speaking with James Bell. He's the head of corporate communications for Kia America, coming to us from the Consumer Electronics Show or CES, where they're showcasing some new technology. And James, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know about this new bi-directional charging and more about electric vehicles in general. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me on. We see the urgent threat of climate change every day. Tornadoes in Texas, droughts in Europe, typhoons in the Philippines. But what don't we see? How the climate crisis hits vulnerable people the hardest, women and girls. That's why CARE helps the world's most marginalized people build resiliency and fight for a more just and sustainable world. You can help. Learn more at care.org slash climate. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Autumn Cavaness, Director of Real Talk and Big Future at the College Board. Students want to pursue opportunities after high school that will lead to a fulfilling career, but their options for what's next are often limited to what they've been exposed to in their family, community, or in school. And Big Future wants to end all that. Autumn, thank you so much for being here today. Heather, thank you for having me. So what exactly is the College Board? College Board has been around since 1900, and we are absolute leaders and pioneers in the education arena. And I'm happy to share with you and your audience today about Big Future, because over at Big Future, Heather, we truly work to empower all students to take the right first step after high school by helping students explore careers, Think about how to plan for college and ultimately, Heather, because we're talking about money, right? It's a new year, how to pay for college. Okay. So what types of features and services does Big Future offer to help students chart a path to a career after high school and, as you mentioned, pay for college? Yes, right. We, we have to secure the bag, as, as my students would say. Well, Heather, I have had the amazing opportunity to work with thousands of incredible students, both in high school as well as in college over the past 10 years. And one thing that I've noticed, and this is just being honest, real talk here, is that when it comes to a student's path, no path is the same. And it can get confusing, right? You you can try to figure out what's that right first step and have no idea. Well, where Big Future truly steps in over at bigfuture.org is to demystify this process that can be more complicated than, quite frankly, my Facebook status, all right? We Hmm. really demystify the process and we share with students and with families and educators how to think through that process in terms of exploring careers, for example, through our career quiz, as well as how to actually find and plan for college and then ultimately how to pay for college and really look at different institutions and see what's best in alignment for that student's journey after high school. Okay. Now, when we talk about paying for college, are we talking about scholarships, grants, or are we looking at student loans that need to be paid back? 
what I love to share um, in particular as it, it pertains to Big Future is that we actually have this incredible scholarship directory, right? So when students are trying to figure out how do I actually finance my education, if you go on over to bigfuture.org, we have guidance not only on how to complete the FAFSA, right, but also a scholarship database that offers about 24,000 scholarships totaling $1.5 billion, okay? And then also, Heather, I would have to share that we have phenomenal big future scholarships. What we really want students and families to do as they contemplate what is that right first step after high school is to actually take action, right? Not to just know about the knowledge that's on big future, but actually to take action. So over at bigfuture.org, we reward students' actions. So let's say a student shares and documents that they completed the FAFSA, or let's say a student is actually actively building out their career list or adding to their college and school list. And we are going to enter that student in our monthly drawings. And our monthly drawings are for our $40,000 and $500 Big Future Scholarships. Heather, we give away two $40,000 Big Future Scholarships a month. And since we launched Big Future Scholarships, we've actually awarded to over 21,000 students across the country nearly $18 million in Big Future Scholarship money. That's incredible. So what students are eligible to use the Big Future resources and tools? Is it any high school student? Heather, best question ever. Any high school student, there is no cost to use Big Future. It is an online comprehensive resource. We really want every student to know that there are myriad options. Every student has a big future. And this is an online comprehensive resource. There is no cost. And even the scholarships for Big Future, right, the $40,000 and the $500, the monthly scholarships that we award, there isn't a minimum GPA. Right. Sometimes when students are trying to actually figure out how to pay for college and, and finance college, the scholarships come with, with strings in terms of minimum GPA, certain essays, certain household income, none of that. We are just rewarding students for taking action to figure out what is that best path moving forward after high school. Okay, interesting. So now my son is in ninth grade, and one of the biggest challenges I feel with high school students is trying to help them figure out which of their interests and passions would actually make a good career choice and then decide, okay, what are we going to approach after high school as far as schooling goes? So you're saying that Big Future has quizzes that help students figure those things out? Yes, so we have our career quiz. And our career quiz takes about 10 minutes to complete, 60 questions. And really what that career quiz is, it delves into interest that may be in alignment with your team or with your students' potential career ideas. So, for example, I actually took this quiz, Heather, right? Because I said, mm -hmm. let me see. <laughs> I've had a lot of myriad experiences. I always say you can't connect the dots looking forward, only backwards, right? You know, when you look back and you go, Oh, that's why I did that. This later had to happen. So I took this quiz, Heather, okay? The results that came back for me, radio and television broadcast, education, and then choreography for dance. 
And those are all things that I have done over the course of, of my life, of, of my future. And so this career quiz, as our students would say, I'm, I'm going to give you and, and your audience a term that our students are using. This career quiz stands on business, Heather, uh, because it really does provide insight into careers that may be in alignment with your team's journey. And it's really about just having a starting point, a conversation with your team that comes from the starting point of, of what they may be interested in, and also to know that there are myriad options out there as they contemplate that right first step after high school. And then Heather, you mentioned that your son was in ninth grade. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So I also have to share with you, personal recommendation is that we have over on bigfuture.org, our college and career planning checklist. And so if you go on to our big future, you'll be able to see literally by grade level and by semester what your students should be doing as they prepare for career and post-secondary choices. So for example, uh, right now, second semester, your son could take our career quiz, right? Think about their GPA as well as explore their, their AP potential and which AP courses to take next year. And all of that is available by grade level, by semester, in both English and Spanish for our high school checklist for students and caring adults. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, how does Big Future support the parents who are helping their kids make these decisions? Is the website just for the kids or is it for parents as well? The website is for anyone who is interested in figuring out what is that right first step after high school, be it that student who is listening right now and contemplating that decision, be it parents, caring adults, who are working with the teen and they really want that teen to actualize and see their big future or be it educators. And then I always say, you know, any friend or ally who says, you know what, let me make sure this is on a student's radar or let me make sure this is on my friend's radar so that they share with their student. So bigfuture.org, free online comprehensive website resource for our communities is available to anyone and should be accessed by everyone. But to answer your question, Heather, in terms of how we help caring adults really connect with students and their teen as they contemplate that next move after high school, is that I love to share that Big Future really has parents back. It can be daunting and overwhelming really thinking through that next step for your teen. Right, all those questions abound, what we call burning questions. How do I know this is the right major for my team? How do I know that they are ready for, for college? Should I start my team at the, at the local community college and then transfer to a four-year? Or should I perhaps have my students start right now, immediately in their career after high school? Big Future has parents back and being able to have resources that help students and parents demystify the process as they work together, right? It's a process working with their student to figure out how to explore careers and, and plan for college, as well as ultimately pay for college if that is the decision. All right, that is fantastic. I know that we'll be using this resource starting like tomorrow, today maybe. So bigfuture.org is the website to go to, bigfuture.org. You can find out more information there or access all kinds of college planning resources and tools. And we've been speaking with Dr. Autumn Cavaness. She's the director of Big Future at the College Board. 
And Autumn, I really want to thank you for being here and sharing this important resource with us and all the students and all the parents listening. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you. So thank you for your time. Absolutely, Heather. Thank you, please. And, and I wish your son the best of luck on his high school journey. And for all of your listeners, as Heather said, please head on over to bigfuture.org because over at Big Future, you can own your future your way. Thank you for having me, Heather. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things, even committed some crimes, but I am not a criminal. I work for youth advocate programs, yet yeah, I was Tamani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, and get a job. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. As Jalen's YAP advocate, I'm always here for her. YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration and neighborhood violence. Youth advocate programs. Learn how at yapinc.org. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Tejas Patil, Assistant Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Colorado, and Janet Freeman-Daly, a patient living with Ross one positive lung cancer. Lung cancer is the deadliest type of cancer, and it's not always caused by smoking. Dr. Patil and Janet, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Dr. Patil, what exactly is ROS1 positive lung cancer? That's an important question. And before I answer that, I would actually like to start by saying that ROS1 is a type of biomarker and that in the last 20 years, we used to just look at lung cancer under a microscope and say whether it was small cell or non-small cell and then offer chemotherapy. What biomarker testing has done is it's allowed us to figure out biomarkers like ROS1, which allow patients to get pills that are targeted treatments that can avoid chemotherapy. Okay, so what exactly do you mean by a biomarker? So a biomarker is a type of test that allows us to understand the genetic makeup of a cancer, and in so doing, can allow us to pick treatments that might not be chemotherapy. Okay, so what kind of new treatment options are available for this type of lung cancer if it doesn't have to be chemotherapy? So we can offer patients immunotherapy, or we can offer patients targeted therapy. Targeted therapy typically comes in the form of a pill you take once a day, and it can have side effects that are very different and oftentimes more well-tolerated than chemotherapy, as Janet can talk about. Yeah, Janet, could you please share your story of living with lung cancer? Sure, Heather, thank you. I was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2011, and this was before most biomarkers were known. So I went through chemotherapy and radiation twice, and both times, as soon as I stopped treatment, my cancer progressed. I was told that I would probably be on chemotherapy for the rest of my life, which would be short. But I learned from other patients online about clinical trials and biomarkers. I arranged to get my cancer tissue tested for a biomarker, found that I had ROS1 positive cancer, and joined a clinical trial and took a pill once a day. And I've been on that same pill now for over 11 years with much less side effects than I had with chemotherapy. Wow. Okay. So, Dr. Patel, how often are patients eligible to take this type of clinical trial and find new treatment options? So, what I tell my patients is you should always be asking what clinical trial is available for me. 
Clinical trials offer the opportunity to bring treatments in the future, the most cutting edge technology to patients right now. And Janet is a good example of a patient who benefited from being on a clinical trial. Definitely made a big difference for me. Yeah. Now, Janet, I mean, taking a slightly different path from what others might have taken must have been a big decision. So what made you decide to go ahead and participate in the trial and try the new medication? I thought it was important to investigate clinical trials because traditional therapies were no longer working for me. Clinical trials help determine whether a new treatment is more useful or more effective than the existing treatment. Important also for me to be able to help the people in the future. Okay, awesome. So, Dr. Patel, where can people go if they want to learn more about lung cancer, specifically ROS1 positive lung cancer, and some of the innovations that are happening around it? So, your audience can go to lungcancer.tips/ros1, and I would also like to encourage that they visit the ROS Wonders, a patient advocacy organization that's dedicated to ROS1 positive lung cancer. All right. So the website to go to is lungcancer.tips slash ROS1. That's R-O-S and the number one, lungcancer.tips slash ROS1. And you can also go to the Lung Cancer Foundation of America website directly, which is lcfamerica.org if you want to find out more about other types of lung cancer and the services that the foundation offers, lcfamerica.org. And Dr. Patel and Janet, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know some of the new innovations around cancer, some options for people, and Janet specifically for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Federal guidelines have nearly doubled the number of Americans eligible for lung cancer screening. Insurance companies are required to cover these tests for those ages 50 to 80 who currently smoke or used to smoke. Along with new treatments, lung cancer screening saves lives. If you are 50 to 80 years old and smoke or used to smoke, talk to your doctor about lung cancer screening. For more information and to find a screening center near you, visit acr.org slash mylcs. That's acr.org slash mylcs. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Philip Adamson, Chief Medical Officer of Abbott's Heart Failure Division and Heart Failure Survivor Lakeisha Brown. Heart failure is the most frequent cause of hospitalization for Americans 65 and older, and it's responsible for almost 400,000 deaths a year in the U.S. Dr. Adamson and Lakeisha, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you, and good morning. Yeah, thank you, Heather. So, Dr. Adamson, what exactly is heart failure? Well, Heather, heart failure develops when the heart really can't produce enough blood flow to meet the body's needs. And that produces a lot of different symptoms, including shortness of breath or exercise intolerance or fatigue. And you mentioned it, heart failure as a diagnosis leads to more deaths in people over the age of 65 than cancer. And so it's a very serious syndrome. And there are fortunately several treatments that can help relieve the symptoms and decrease this progression of the disease, but it is progressive. That means it gets worse over time, kind of naturally. And there are specific treatments for each stage of this disease. Okay. Now, why is heart failure sometimes misdiagnosed? 
many of the symptoms are associated with other diseases, like if I feel short of breath or say I can't walk up a flight of stairs like I used to, I might think that I'm just getting older or out of shape. That kind of shortness of breath can be written off to other diseases. And in fact, when people are younger, doctors many times don't think of heart failure as something that they could be suffering with. And other diseases like pneumonia or asthma or, or just simply being out of shape can be thought of by, even by doctors. So the symptoms many times are not specific or very directed towards this diagnosis and other imaging tests and things have to be done to really get clarity of diagnosis. Okay, so it's a frequent cause of hospitalization for older Americans, but you don't have to be older to have heart failure. You're absolutely right. Heart failure can happen to anybody. It can happen to children. It's just rarer, and it is more common in people who are older, but it can happen at any age in life. Lakeisha, what has your journey with heart failure been like? Well, initially, it was a shortness of breath that I was having. I attributed all of that, the symptoms that I was having, to stress, not realizing that um, it was something else going on with me because of my age. It wasn't until I went to see the first cardiologist that I saw and knew that heart failure was obviously a big thing and a big issue, but me having to be my own advocate and trying to find the right care for myself, because there were so many things I didn't know, so many questions I didn't know to ask because I didn't have the information. I do understand and know that people make decisions based on the information that they have, and I just didn't have the information to make a better informed decision. Yeah. You mentioned your age, Lakeisha. How old were you when diagnosed with heart failure? 41. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, Dr. Adamson, you mentioned that there are some treatments available. What are they? Well, Heather, we start with medications, and there are very specially designed medications that go into the heart to help it get stronger and to keep it from getting worse. And those medicines are incredibly important to use early in the disease. And in fact, time is of the essence here because every day, every week with heart failure, the heart gets worse if we don't intervene. And if the heart failure syndrome gets worse, and gets to the point, like with Lakeisha, where she was having shortness of breath at rest or the heart's unable to really pump blood to the body. We call that advanced heart failure, and advanced heart failure requires very specific interventions like transplant, replacing the heart with a new one. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of hearts out there, but fortunately, we have Abbott's HeartMate 3 device, which is a, an implantable pump that is put inside the heart that actually helps the heart pump blood out to the body. And those two interventions for advanced heart failure allow patients to re actually get their life back. They restores quality of life, increases the length of life, allows people to live comfortable lives outside the hospital. Incredibly important. And, but unfortunately, most people with heart failure don't receive even the medications that are, are life-saving in this, in this syndrome. So again, as Lakeisha mentioned, Patients really need to be their own advocate and understand what kinds of options there are for them at each stage of heart failure. Okay. So, Lakeisha, is it the HeartMate 3 device that you have? Yes, it is. And what kind of difference has that made to your well-being and your quality of life? 
After getting the Abbott HeartMate 3, I could tell the difference almost instantaneously. I was able to breathe freely. I wasn't uncomfortable anymore lying down. Walking across the room wasn't a challenge anymore for me. And I've been able to return to uh, the same things that I was doing prior to all this happening. I'm back in the gym, catering and cooking and spending time with my, my family and friends. So it's been really good. Wow, that's awesome. So, Dr. Adamson, does the journey start with our primary care provider? And after that, how far does it go? Do we need to find a heart failure specialist or what kind of doctor are we looking for if we suspect something like this or if our primary care physician suspects? Well, Heather, that's incredibly important. And your listeners really do need to understand that there are multiple people that will be involved in the journey of heart failure. Many times the first diagnosis happens either in the emergency department or with a primary care physician. Many times that then generates a referral to a heart specialist to understand the reversible causes of heart damage and heart dysfunction. And then as this disease progresses, it's inc incredibly important to be aware that there are cardiologists that are specially trained to treat advanced heart failure. So heart failure specialists are cardiologists that can deliver very high level care for people who suffer with this disease. All of those people are typically involved in the journey, but to remember, patients need to remember that there are specialists that that's all they do is treat heart failure and provide care like Lakeisha had with the Abbott's HeartMate 3 device, providing that implant, supporting patients after that using the right medications. So you hit on a very important piece that patients need to realize is that, you know, a cardiologist is specialized for very specific things in heart care. And there are heart failure specialists available to care for people with heart failure. Okay, perfect. So where could listeners go if they want to learn more about heart failure and the treatment options that are available? Well, there's multiple places that provide good information. One example would be domoreforheartfailure.com. So it's a website with, and that's all one word, domoreforheartfailure.com. Provides lots of information, other links to other credible places to get good information about heart failure. American Heart Association also provides information at aha.com or heart.com. So there are really good places to get information on the web. Doctors can, can certainly provide referrals. And remember that there are advanced heart failure specialists that are cardiologists that are specifically trained to take care of this disease. Okay, perfect. So once again, those websites, aha.com or heart.com for the American Heart Association and do more for heartfailure.com. If you'd like to explore more about this topic, do more for heartfailure.com. And Dr. Adamson and Lakeisha, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Dr. Adamson, for letting us know more about heart failure and how serious it is and the various treatment options. And Lakeisha, for sharing your personal story with us. I really appreciate you both being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Heather. Have you made your 2024 memory screening appointment yet? Annual memory screening should be a part of everyone's health and wellness routine, even if you're not currently experiencing memory problems. The Alzheimer's Foundation of America offers free memory screenings every weekday with no minimum age or insurance prerequisites. Learn more about memory screenings and schedule your free memory screening appointment by contacting the Alzheimer's Foundation of America at 866-232-8484 or visiting www.alzfdn.org. 
You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with certified psychiatrist, Dr. Christoph Corral. Dr. Corral, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So people often think that schizophrenia is about having multiple personalities, but what exactly is it? Yeah, this is a misconception because of the word schizophrenia, which is a schism actually in the mind, not in the personality. So it's different areas of the brain that don't talk in sync. Our brain is orchestration, but there are some instruments that are too loud or too muffled. And schizophrenia, therefore, then affects everything that makes us human. It's how we act, how we feel, how we think, how we talk and also how we perceive the world and make sense of the stimuli, which can then lead to misinterpretation, thinking that people are out to get me or that something is happening to my mind and to my body, and also hearing maybe voices and seeing things that are not there, which can be quite scary for patients. Now, I'm quite excited to be partnering with Janssen Pharmaceuticals to educate about schizophrenia in your show, and also about long-acting treatment options that can change what patients can achieve when they're diagnosed with schizophrenia. Okay, awesome. Now, how prevalent is schizophrenia in the U.S.? So we think that's about 1% of the population across the globe, which would make it about 2.8 million people in the United States of adults. And we'll be talking about adults living with schizophrenia. Okay. Now, what are some of the challenges that adults living with schizophrenia face? Well, first of all, having the diagnosis and coming to terms with that. What does that mean? And how is it portrayed in the media, online? And there are many misconceptions. So it's very important to first get right and good information about the illness and then how to deal with it. Am I going to take a medication for how long? Am I going to take talk therapy? And we know that schizophrenia currently can't be cured, but it can be managed. It can be managed well, but you need daily medication, which is often prescribed once a day, which means 365 times a year. And one of the challenges is to take the medication, to believe in it, to grapple with some side effects. And therefore, some of the long-acting injectables that are given at much longer intervals have been shown to lead to better outcomes in order to help patients bridge when they get maybe tired of being adherent. And let's face it, you and I, everybody is non-adherent. It's part of the human condition, diet, exercise, medications. But people who are vulnerable with schizophrenia really can't afford being for a longer period of time without the security of the medication. Okay, so long-acting injectables mean instead of taking daily medication, they can wait a certain amount of time between getting their injected doses? Absolutely. And there are different injection intervals, but Janssen has actually the broadest portfolio of different injection intervals. There's Invega Sistena, which is given once a month, meaning 12 times a year. There's Invega Trinza, which is given every three months. That's seasonal treatment, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And then there is now newly approved by the Food and Drug Administration Invega Half Yera, which is given every six months, twice a year. And there's some exciting recent data where patients who entered an open-label study for two years had only 4% relapse. That means 96% of patients were relapse-free 
they could deal with their life, go on with psychosocial treatments, and 90% of the patients actually finish the whole two-year course of the study, which is very unlikely with other medications. And we have to put this into context. Often patients have to be readmitted, their psychosocial rehabilitation course is interrupted, and also they get into trouble with their loved ones who try to keep them on course, check on them, are you taking the medication? There's conflict about it. So being on a long-acting injectable frees valences, frees energy in order to focus on what really matters, and that goes beyond symptoms. That goes into functionality, being able to have friends, going out, having maybe an intimate relationship. What about going back to school or work, being living independently? That's all what patients want, and they can't achieve that when the symptoms are in the way and they have relapses. So long-acting injectables actually delay the onset of a relapse, have been shown to decrease the risk of hospitalization. Patients live longer on them because a better healthy lifestyle and their functionality is more likely. Okay. Now, since long-acting injectables come in a variety of different intervals, as you mentioned, it could be once a month, every three months, or every six months, what situation would cause you to recommend one interval over another with a specific patient? Yeah, that's a great question, and it highlights the specific patient. So the illness doesn't express itself in the same way in every patient, and Medication is not right for every patient. So we need to understand what's right for the patient. And like all medications, there are risks and benefits that need to be weighed against each other. So I think clinicians are a relevant source of information. So if somebody listens and has schizophrenia or a loved one, then please go to a healthcare professional, talk about the illness and the treatment options, but also if they are not offered, ask about long-acting treatments, which are sometimes not offered first line, although they should, as the data suggests, because they can keep people more on an even keel. And there's also a website one can go to, which has really good information, jansenlais.com, where patients or their loved ones can even get further information on what's appropriate for which patient in terms of treatment options. Okay. Now, you did mention talk therapy as well. How effective is adding talk therapy into the treatment regimen? Yeah, we've done a big meta-analysis on this, and it's, it's clear that cognitive behavioral therapy, where one tries to understand how do I perceive the world, do I have automatic thoughts and responses, can augment medication. But alone, it's not effective enough. There's also family therapy where family members can be keyed in how to deal with somebody best who has schizophrenia, meaning that you don't call them lazy. If they have negative symptoms, they have a hard time actually motivating themselves and being able to support patients in their medication taking and giving them a sense of belonging and sense of agency. So these two treatment options are maybe the best and well studied, but it shows that talk therapy added to medication can be helpful. Okay, perfect. And you mentioned that the website, if people want to go to learn more about treating schizophrenia with long-acting injectables, the website is jansenlais.com. 
Yes, that's right. And I think it's a useful resource that I often recommend to my patients and they've been able to really glean a lot of important information from it because when they're in a doctor's office, it often goes very fast and they have also sometimes problems with remembering things. So being able to have that resource and discuss it maybe with the loved ones at home or friends and family can be quite helpful in making an informed decision. But one has to also remember, try it out because you can always also then have another course of action, but you shouldn't reject something that you haven't tried. Okay, perfect. So jansenlais.com is the website to go to. That's J-A-N-S-S-E-N. And then L-A-I-S stands for long-acting injectables schizophrenia. So jansenlais.com. And Dr. Corral, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise with treating schizophrenia and the various different options that sound like they're extremely helpful for patients who have schizophrenia. So I really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And also thank you for bringing schizophrenia out to the world that people have a better understanding of it and can manage it better. The sun's shining, birds are singing, and all feels right in the world. Until the season changes, and suddenly you lose your motivation to get out of bed. In fact, one in five people experience some form of depression, no matter the season or time of year. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all, because we want you to live your best life and be your best you all year round. Please visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is James Skank, CEO, and Andrea McCarran, president of the Penn Fed Foundation, along with Pilot, a service dog in training. James is also a Canine Companions Hero Award winner, and Andrea is a proud puppy raiser. Thank you all for being here today. Thank Great you so much for having us. So first of all, what is the Penn Fed Foundation? The Penn Fed Foundation has been around for about 20 years and we serve our veterans. We champion our, our military through advocacy, investment, and one of our major programs is uh, telling the world about service dogs and the impact they have on the quality of life with those with disabilities. Okay, now you've got Pilot with you, and Pilot is just a puppy, so tell us about him and how he is a service dog in training. Oh, how I wish you and your listeners could see Pilot. He is nine weeks old. He looks like a little stuffed soft teddy bear. He is a yellow Labrador retriever, golden retriever cross, which is predominantly what Canine Companions uses because of the temperament, the great temperament, the you know desire to please, very trainable breed of dogs. Puppy raisers like me are all volunteers, and we get the puppies like Pilot at about eight weeks of age, And then we raise them until they're about 18 months of age. And puppy raisers don't need any dog training experience. All you need is the willingness to open your heart and your home and ideally your workplace to the presence of a dog that is training for a very important life-changing mission. Okay, so does the puppy raiser train the service dog to be a service dog or do they just take care of it like it's any old puppy? Oh, great question. Not like it's any old puppy, but our primary role is socializing the dog. If you think about it, where would a veteran or someone else with a disability need to go or want to go? So I will be taking Pilot into grocery stores, to restaurants, hotels, on airline flights, 
everywhere someone with a disability would normally go. They just have this little added bit of confidence with them when they have a service dog at their side. We teach them as puppy raisers the basic obedience commands. But after I have Pilot for about 18 months, he will go in for six months of formal training where he will learn to turn on and off light switches, to open and close a refrigerator door after fetching a bottle of water. He will be able to get a credit card off the floor, get keys, cell phone, anything their veteran or someone else with a disability might drop to the floor. These dogs are custom trained for the needs of their veterans or others. Wow, picking up a credit card off the floor, that seems pretty tricky. It is tricky, and I have to tell you, this is one of my proudest moments as a six-time puppy raiser. People are just in awe at the grocery store. I will hand the dog my credit card. They will put their paws up on the counter and either scan the credit card on that little machine and then take the credit card back. And people are just in awe, but dogs love to please. They love to have a job. And Canine Companions is the first service dog organization in the nation that we've partnered with at the PenFed Foundation. It was created in 1975 and has placed more than 8,000 service dogs nationwide. Wow, nice. Okay. And then what is the Canine Companions Hero Award? I guess as a CEO, they're very proud that I'm a champion for allowing service dogs in the workplace, these puppies in training. It is so important. So many people have a misperception that they would be sort of disruptive to the workplace. But on the contrary, they actually reinforce a corporation's culture of service, doing something for others, a kindness and respect for one another. These service dogs are in the, a staff meeting all the way to a board meeting, and they create a very positive cultural experience. So I'm a great advocate for encouraging all businesses across the America to allow their employees to bring puppies in training to the workplace. And the research actually backs that up, that having a dog, particularly a dog like Pilot with a mission in the workplace, increases productivity and decreases blood pressure among the staff and also increases morale. It is a great team building endeavor. And a phenomenal experience at PenFed and we encourage so many others to take part. Yeah, so if someone wanted to be a puppy raiser, would they need to have that kind of flexible workplace that allows the puppy in training to come to work with them? That's a great question. The employer definitely has to agree to this. And, you know, I've worked in places where I've raised puppies where there are employees that have allergies to dogs, for instance, or are afraid of them. And we obviously accommodate their needs. I've moved my office to a different floor for that reason. But I really encourage employers to do what James has, which no other CEO in the nation has, which is allow the employees to raise nine service dogs at the office, not all at once and at our facilities across the country, but what an incredible message to employees that we can all work together to change the life of a veteran or someone else with a disability. Because right now, the wait list for these highly trained service dogs is up to two years. And if you think about it, if you're a veteran struggling with PTSD, a two-year wait is about two years too long. What the deficit is, is volunteer puppy raisers like me. We need more people to raise these dogs and do the selfless act of giving them back so someone else can live a better life. Yeah, yeah. So what kind of experience, what kind of lifestyle, what makes the best kind of puppy raiser? 
you know, anyone can have a great experience as a puppy raiser and make a good puppy raiser. I think ideally it's somebody who, you know, has the time and the desire to take a dog everywhere. I mean, I have met people I would never have met otherwise because of the service dogs I train, from professional athletes to celebrities to veterans who will stop me on the street and literally hug me when they know why I'm raising a service dog and it's for them or one of their battle buddies. You know, it's ideal to have a combination of both a workplace and a relatively busy social life, meaning I take my dogs to concerts, I take them to basketball, hockey, and baseball games. You know, something that will really prepare them for a veteran or someone else with a disability who really has a full life. Another thing that's been great about going to a concert with a dog is we'll sit in the accessible section, and often there are people in wheelchairs there. So my puppies can get used to being around people with wheelchairs, and often we'll snuggle up to them. Dogs have this innate sense of doing what's right. And of course, they provide unconditional love. They never have a bad day. They're always happy to see you. And four of the veterans that have received dogs I've raised have told me the dogs changed their life and saved their life. So what could be better than that? Yeah, that's awesome. So basically, it's about having enough time and dedication to get the puppy used to going everywhere with you. Because when they become a service dog for a veteran or someone with a disability, they will be going everywhere with that person. Absolutely. Canine Companions and any reputable service dog organization will provide these highly trained dogs that have more than 40 skills free of charge to veterans. The best thing I can do is send you to our website, penfedfoundation.org, where people can not just learn how to get involved, but learn and see examples of all the incredible skills service dogs do. Okay, so once again, penfedfoundation.org is the website to go to, penfedfoundation.org. You can find out more about volunteering to train service dogs as a puppy raiser or get a service dog yourself. Penfedfoundation.org is the website. James and Andrea, I want to thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Do you know a veteran in need? Nation's Finest, through the VA's Supportive Services for Veteran Families program, helps veterans and their families struggling with rent, employment, and other housing-related costs. Today, Nation's Finest operates more than 30 locations in California, Arizona, and Nevada, helping thousands of veterans every year. Visit nationsfinest.org or call 1-833-468-9676. That's 1-833-468-9676. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the valley. The College of Southern Nevada, or CSN, is starting their spring classes this Tuesday, January 16th, with late registration from January 17th to 22nd. They offer a mix of online and in-person classes, and CSN was just named one of America's top online colleges by Newsweek. Check out all their certificates, associate degrees, and bachelor degree programs at csn.edu. That's csn.edu. 
Vegas Stronger is holding their Polar Plunge Challenge next Thursday, January 18th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Vegas Stronger, 916 North Main Street, south of Washington. They also have opportunities to get involved by volunteering, holding a hygiene drive or food drive, or handing out golden tickets. Find out more or make a donation at VegasStronger.org. That's VegasStronger.org. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include Monday, January 22nd at 8 p.m., benefiting Free International, and Monday, February 5th at 8 p.m., benefiting ALS of Southern Nevada. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. And the nonprofit organization There Is No Hero in Heroin Foundation of Las Vegas is hosting its free annual Recon Recovery Conference featuring former Miss USA Tara Connor on Saturday, February 10th with workshops at 9 a.m., keynote speaker at 1.30, and a resource fair at 2.30 p.m. at the UNLV Student Union, 4505 South Maryland Parkway. Find out more information about the organization and the conference at TINHIH.org. That stands for There Is No Hero in Heroin, TINHIH.org. (laughs) 